So six grand just demonstrates how gluttonous the people of Calvary Chapel are. Where the sheep like to eat. Generous, I mean. Generous. No, that's pretty fun. Yeah, good job. All right. Well, uh, we are in Matthew. Uh, I'm going to back up a little bit and six, gather some context. Let me get my stuff on the screen first. I'm not sure if the sound folks are paying attention. It'll happen. So I wanted to uh, bring your attention again to the petition for Referendum 101. I don't know if you guys have read much about it. We, I brought it to your attention last Sunday, um, hoping that more of... Oh, wait. I think this is my fault. Just a sec. Let's try that again. How's that? Okay, so um, the petition. Um, so let me just read a, a portion of it here. Because when the legislation tries to pass it through, uh, it's, it's couched in all kinds of language so that uh, the common people uh, don't really know what's going on. And uh, so... Um, because they're, they're tricksy up there. But the bill would exempt certain shelters, organizations, and programs from parental notification requirements for minors seeking gender-affirming care or reproductive health care services, which means abortion. So, in other words, if your 14-year-old is seeking an abortion, uh, they, have to, uh, they cannot tell the parents the child doesn't want them to. If they're seeking, to, uh, seeking uh, gender transitional care, uh, they can't tell the parents. And if the parents are, uh, if the kid is seeking shelter from the parents, the state can just take them and shelter them. And, uh, so anyway, <laughs> please sign it. Uh, the state has no business around our children. Uh, they don't know what's best for our kids. They want them to be involved in all kinds of immoral behavior. And uh, they want to affirm uh, immorality. They want to affirm mental illness, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so I hope that you're also speaking to your kids about this stuff and speaking to my kids, especially as they see and hear and witness all the stuff that's going on. And it's a good opportunity to inform them and to bring them back to the Word of God, instruct them. Shelter your... Yeah, it'll be at the Connect Center. And uh, Mike was going to take this one back to that for me when you get a chance, if that's okay. You're the best, Mike. All right. Last week um, in chapter 16. I read all the way through verse 28, uh, but we didn't discuss it. How many of you guys even know? Ooh, people are paying attention. All right, so I'm accountable to cover everything, and uh, that's my plan. Uh, so this morning, I want to actually go back to verse 27 of chapter 16 for the context, and then we're going to read through to verse 13 of chapter 17. And uh, we'll talk about uh, a couple things in here that are fairly, I guess when I say controversial, I don't mean that people are um, injuring one another or debate, but there's some differences of opinion about all of this. And you guys know me, so I have some opinions, and I'm going to share those with you this morning. But um, in the end, I, everybody essentially affirms what is essential, what's simple. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, Matthew 16. Verse 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angel, and then he will reward each according to his word. Assuredly, I say to you, there's some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. 
if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, that's tents or shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer. And the disciples understood that he spoke to John the Baptist. Father, Lord, thank you for this particular event and what it signifies, what it guarantees and pledges. I pray that just as you intended it, encourage these men, Lord, that it would adjust regarding things to come regarding the, the truth of your identity, and Lord, that we would be strengthened. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated now. All right, go back to verse 27. We talked about this. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father, and, or, of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work, speaking of the judgment. Uh, the second coming, uh, as Peter says, when he will judge the living and the dead. But the following verse cannot be a reference to that period of time. Because Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In other words, some of you standing here, you're going to be alive to see me coming in my kingdom, whatever that means, to come in his kingdom. Uh, Mark and Luke also record this conversation, uh, but of course they provided some further details. Mark says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Luke, he says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Matthew 16, they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mark 9, they will see the kingdom of God present with power. Luke 9, they will see the kingdom of God. Let's go back to Matthew 16. What is Jesus talking about? Now certainly... The disciples will have died before Jesus comes and sits on the throne of his glory and reigns over the earth, as Matthew 25 says. He has not yet returned to the earth, amen? He's not yet come and sat on his throne, and all the disciples are dead. So what did Jesus... Now, there are uh, a number of views, opinions about this from a variety of teachers. Let me give you just a couple. Some believe that Jesus is talking about God's judgment against Israel in 70 AD when the Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So according to them, coming in his kingdom means the destruction of Jerusalem, the ruthless killing and the enslavement of the Jewish people for not believing in Christ. So what are the merits of this position? Well, some of the apostles were indeed alive in 70 AD when all of that happened, uh, but I'm not sure what else commends this interpretation. I'm not sure how you could equate the destruction of Jerusalem with the coming of Jesus in his kingdom. Uh, it's also interesting to me that when you know, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 606 BC, 
There was no talk of the kingdom of God coming when that happened. So why would anyone say that about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? It's just a very strange thing to me. Others believe that the Son of Man coming in his kingdom refers to his death, resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then the spread of the gospel with various signs, miracle. Again, what are the merits of this position? Well, some of the apostles indeed alive to witness those things happening. But the thing is, there's nothing in Scripture that says these things are Jesus coming in his kingdom. Uh, they're all, of course, actual events in the early history of the church, but nothing in Scripture equates those things uh, with his kingdom. Okay? I think the answer is actually in the next chapter. And when we look at Peter's discussion of what happens in the next chapter in his letter, uh, I think it supports just that. So let's take a look at what Jesus meant by, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on the high, a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So after six days... Now, the phrase, after six days, you know, connects what is about to happen to what was declared in chapter 16, verse 28. That's Jesus' declaration that some would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is about to take place. Uh, Luke's gospel supports this. He says, now it came to pass, but he says, about eight days after these sayings. So whatever was said will find its explanation in what is about to happen. Now, of course, Matthew's gospel says it was six days, but Luke's gospel says about eight days later. How do we reconcile of that? Well, Matthew, speaking to his Jewish audience, he just gives the exact number. And Luke, according to uh, D.A. Carson and other Greek scholars, say was writing to Greeks and used a Greek way of saying it was just about a week. I wasn't so concerned about exact numbers but just says it was about this amount. And so by special invite, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. Now, this, wasn't, this isn't the first time that Jesus handpicked these three and then brought them with him. It's not going to be the last time. These three will venture further into the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying before he's arrested. Um, we'll talk a little bit about perhaps why these three later. What about the mountain itself? Which mountain was it? Um, who cares? If we care too much, we build a monument there, and we, we start pilgrimages these places. And, uh, but if you're ultra curious, it could have been, I think, one of three mountains, Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, or Jebel Jermak, which was a smaller mountain about uh, 4,000 feet in elevation in the upper Galilee. I don't really care. Is that okay? Uh, if God cared, he would have told us. If he wanted us to care, he would. Be that as it may, uh, there before them, uh, this is the important part, Jesus was, he was transfigured. He was transformed. It says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white or brilliant as the light itself. So what was Jesus transformed into? That's the question. Well, he was transformed into his royal dignity, his regal majesty. Uh, William Hendrickson points out that the phrase coming in his kingdom doesn't mean coming to establish 
or to set up the kingdom. It, it just means to come in royal dignity, in regal power, to appear, uh, we might say, in his kingliness. Okay? I think people jump to too many conclusions when he says coming in his kingdom. Okay? The Greek word for kingdom actually means royalty, power, sovereignty, just as, as much as it does kingdom. So to come in this manner can mean to come in the dignity or the majesty of a particular office as they saw him here when he was transfigured. When Jesus does come to establish his kingdom, he is going to appear in this manner that is divine glory in his majesty. And when he does that, he will sit on the throne of his glory, the throne of David. Now, something I think that it's important to add here is apparently... Jesus can dim the lights, as it were, so that he doesn't consume the onlooker. Okay, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 through 16 says that he dwells in unapproachable light. That is, in his divine majesty, in his full glory, his light is unapproachable by us, at least in our current state. Because we're not in our glorified state yet, right? I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> it was important, though, to appear this way to these three men, because in the last chapter he told them that he was going to suffer many things and then die. He did say that he was going to rise again, but it seems like every time he says that, the disciples, they can't think about that. All they can think about is the death part, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die. And none of that computes for coming in glory and majesty throne, but then suffering and dying. Could you please do the math for Jesus on all of that? I mean, how do, you, how do you shake it off when someone dear to you, someone who you believe is the Messiah, who will come and set up the messianic kingdom, how do you deal with that, that they say they're going to suffer and die? And if they die, how do they accomplish things beyond their death? Because Jesus assured them in Matthew 16, 27, that he is coming with the glory of his Father and his angels to reward each according to his works. But if you're going to die, how are you going to do that? He knew that they were having troubles putting it all together. So he grabs the inner circle, Peter, James, and he takes them up on the mountain and he allows them to witness this very interesting thing, his glory, his, his majesty, to demonstrate that all of that will happen, but it won't stop anything that I'm going. And so it served, we might say, as a pledge to these men in particular, to prove to them that he is the Christ, he is the Son of the living God, and all things predicted about him will come to pass. So, so there's no amount of suffering. Not even death can hinder his mission. In fact, death will actually advance his mission because it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. So why these guys? Why these three men? Okay, I'm going to take a, a wild shot in the dark at this. Okay, is that fair? So I don't, I don't know that I'm right. And I like to be right. But I don't know that I'm right here, okay? To James, perhaps, because he was the first apostle to be martyred, okay? He wasn't the first martyr of the church. That was Stephen. But this is, he was the first apostle. That's Acts 12, verse 2. But he got to see Jesus in his royal dignity before his own death. He could look back to that and be confident that the one who shined like the sun would actually rise from the dead and do all that he promised, including bring with him those who trusted in Jesus. Jesus said that you will be where I am. He promised them. And then to Peter, because upon him, Christ would build the church. He would grant the keys of the kingdom. And Peter, having all of this understanding and knowledge, 
He could preach to the masses, both to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he could be the one that leads the disciples into persecution and then click their heels on the way out and be glad that they got to suffer for Jesus' sake. That is, they were persecuted together through Peter's lead before the Jewish high council. Remember, before the resurrection, uh, they were hiding in the dark. But then after the resurrection, they were just out in the open. They were ready to... He was assured on the mountain. Now, to John... Because I think he would endure the longest among the apostles. He would endure, endure clear to the end of the first century. All the other apostles would die and he'd be all alone. Well, that's probably a strange place to be, don't you think? They're all dead. They're all dead. But he would live on and he would be persecuted until his, basically to his death by the Romans. But he could look back to Jesus' pledge and be assured that all was going as planned. Those are my guesses. But there on the mountain, Jesus did reveal to them that he was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he will indeed come and sit on the throne of his glory, reign over the earth, but suffering and death were just necessary to make all of that happen. But there's more. To make things more interesting, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. That's talking with Jesus. So now, what is Moses and Elijah doing there? And how did the apostles know it was them? That's interesting. Again, as much as I would like to, to just tell you why and how, the text doesn't say, so um, we're just going to have to have fun exploring the possibilities. Um, then it was Moses and Elijah's interesting. You remember that Moses died in Moab, right? He was forbidden by God to enter into the land because of that little incident where he misrepresented God's character before the people. Deuteronomy 34, he was forbidden, so he died there. He wasn't allowed in the land, but... He's in the land now, isn't he? He certainly will be during the kingdom. Even more interesting is the fact that Michael, the archangel, contended with Satan over the body of Moses. It's discussed in, in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. So Satan is the original body snatcher, okay? What Satan wanted with the body of Moses is not known. It's not said in the text. But Michael would not let him have it, perhaps because God had use for it, as we see here in the text perhaps maybe even later. Now, in order to keep Moses' body from Satan, it's implied that Michael took Moses' body with him, wherever he went with it, okay? Isn't that weird? Let's just be honest. But you know, God's going to take your body with him too, but it'll be different, okay? It'll be a little different. Elijah's story is also interesting because we know that he never died. He was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, and then also, according to the prophet Malachi, Elijah would come again before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's all interesting. Why are they there? In Luke's gospel, he reveals that they were there talking to Jesus about his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke 9.31. So that adds to it. Why would Moses and Elijah be talking to Jesus about his death? Well, let me tell you what I think. Seeing that Moses was the lawgiver and Elijah, Elijah was this renowned prophet, they may be there representing the two major divisions of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Why would that matter? Well, you remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, understand this, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. How would he fulfill the two? Well, first, the law of Moses demanded two things. Two things. Perfect obedience, just as the new covenant. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is. Glad Jesus came and imputed some righteousness to us. 
But it also demanded a perfect sacrifice for disobedience. Jesus fulfilled all of that. He obeyed the law perfectly, and he was a perfect sacrifice for those who disobeyed the law. He also fulfilled the prophets by fulfilling all that they predicted. For example, his virgin conception and birth, the incarnation of God, being born in Bethlehem, being a refugee, living a sinless life, dying a substitutional and atoning death, rising the third day, and we could go on and on and on, right? He has more to fulfill, and he's going to take care of that as well. It is interesting that when it came to the law and the prophets, they, they actually both predicted the death of Christ as the three of them were discussing on the mountain. The law predicted Jesus' death by way of illustration in all of the sacrifices. We see that in Leviticus 4, in chapter 23 and 25. And the prophets, of course, by, by way of God's foreknowledge and his predetermination, places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 50. So Jesus had said in Matthew 5, 17, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And Moses, who represented the law, Elijah, who represented the prophets, they were there, I believe, to testify. Bob O'Neill, how many of you guys know Bob O'Neill? Is he here? Probably hate me for mentioning. He pondered whether they were there to testify also to Jesus' identity. As the scriptures say, let every fact be established by two or three witnesses. Okay, well, Jesus doesn't just get two witnesses because the Father's going to chime in as well. He's going to get as many as the law require. Now, the other question we asked was, how did the disciples recognize Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for hundreds of years. No paintings, there's no photos, there's no sculptures. I mean, that comes later, right? With the Italian guys that did all that, who were gravely in error in many of their depictions because they thought that, you know, Jews were just like Greeks and all that. Well, let me take a guess. Um, I just have to say it's by divine revelation. Amen? Yeah, I don't think they recognized Moses because he was carrying the Ten Commandments, because he turned his staff into a snake, uh, I don't think they recognized Elijah because he had the mantle on, which he gave up anyway to Elisha. Um, I don't think it was by something he did, but just revelation. Now, I do think that because they did recognize that it suggests that we will recognize uh, others in heaven. It, it doesn't say that. I just think that it suggests that, that the saints that have died in faith, uh, that we will see them, we will recognize them. Fair enough? And I think that would be part of heaven, wouldn't it? recognizing those who have gone before us in faith. Let's move on. Of course, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Well, no, duh. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I think we all know people who, when nothing should be said, they feel uncomfortable keeping things quiet. Okay, that's Peter. But apparently, Peter didn't want this moment to pass. Luke tells us that, you know, they were wrapping up the conversation and, and, and ready to leave, depart, and then Peter chimed in. He's like, whoa, 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 you don't have to go anywhere. I can build tents. I can build tents, okay? Peter, I think, was just feeling awkward and hospitable, okay? While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. So God the Father actually interrupted Peter to testify to who Jesus is, his beloved son, and then to commission the disciples to hear and heed his instruction. So Peter, now is not the time to speak or to participate. Now is the time to listen and obey. The boys were there to be witnesses of Jesus' majesty, to be assured of the fact that he would come and establish his kingdom. And until then, 
They were to receive and execute his instruction. You know how similar this is to Acts chapter 1? They spend 40 days with Jesus, and the, the whole time they're together, they're talking about the kingdom. And then the disciples say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, look, the dates and times for all that is in my Father's hand. But you shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the utter ends of the world. Here's the same thing. The kingdom is on the horizon. But many things have to be done from now until then. You're to usher in subjects to the, through the preaching of the gospel. And when I'm satisfied with it, then I'll return in glory. Amen? That's when you're. So this all served, I believe, as a pledge regarding Jesus' declaration that he would indeed come and rule over the We'll come back to that. And then when disciples heard it, that is the voice of God, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Now, they've been afraid for a long time, as Luke tells us. That when, he, when Moses and Elijah were there speaking with Jesus, and Jesus was shining like the sun, it says they were afraid. And then that's probably, you know, Peter feeling awkward and afraid. That's when, but I think it's natural afraid. Uh, the Jews also, they knew better not to look upon God. So when the cloud came in and the voice of God erupted, they hit the floor because they knew they weren't to look upon God. Uh, God said, for no man shall see me and live, he told Moses in Exodus 33.20. Manoah and Isaiah both thought that they would die because they got a glimpse of God, though they did not see his. Remember, God told Moses, I will let you see the tailing edge, because if you see me, that's my translation, God is not used. So Peter and and the others are understandably afraid, they hit the ground, but Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. Now, I think this is interesting because this won't be the last time that Jesus touches John, okay, and tells him not to be afraid after seeing him in his glorified state. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, John, he actually passes out when he sees Jesus in his glorified state, and then the Lord comes and puts his hands on him to arouse him. Wake up. You got to write the Revelation. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So it wasn't necessary for the scene to They'd witnessed everything that Jesus wanted them to see. I mean, imagine, they saw him transfigured in glory. They saw two of the most famous characters in the history of the Jews. They heard this conversation about Jesus' death, and they heard the fathers commissioning them to hear, to heed the voice. That's sufficient. They were privileged to be there. They were accountable to all that was revealed to them and to what was commanded of them. But there's some restrictions. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, you would think that by now Jesus would just stop telling people these things, right? Uh, He's commanded so many people to not tell what they heard, what they saw, to tell what he did. Um, And everyone this far, they have failed to keep a secret, okay? I'm I'm not totally confident that the disciples did not share or even boast to the other boys uh, what they saw and heard. Okay, now, Luke tells us that, that they didn't tell anybody in those days. and Maybe he's referring to after the resurrection. But I don't know that Peter could do that. But who knows, okay? Jesus, though, he wanted it kept quiet until after he was risen. Now, I'm not sure exactly why, but apparently it wouldn't be of any use until then, Okay. Uh, and I'm not sure that they fully understood until after the resurrection. Uh, of the three of them, though, Peter's the only one who actually wrote about it later in life in his epistle. Uh, James, the brother of John, he actually never wrote an epistle. Uh, he was martyred early in the church's history. Uh, 
Uh, John certainly could, I mean, had time to write about. He lived till like 90-something A.D., uh, but maybe he thought Peter's account was sufficient. But it's Peter's discussion that is actually, I think, important for understanding uh, what has happened in regard to what Jesus has said in Matthew 16, 28. We know he said, Assuredly I say to you, there's some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As we said at the beginning, to come in his kingdom does not mean to establish or to set up the kingdom, but to come in his royal dignity and majesty. And Peter's discussion confirms that this is what Jesus meant by coming in his kingdom. Here's what he said. He said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when it came to telling people about Jesus' coming in power, the disciples weren't, they weren't making it up. He says, we, were, we actually saw him. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Well, when are you referring to? For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is clearly referring to the transfiguration of Jesus there on the mountain when the father said what he said. But notice how Peter, he confirms to his audience that Jesus' coming in power was not a fable. He says, it's because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty there on the mountain. So, so Peter's saying this, I can assure you that Jesus' coming in power is not a fable. He's coming. I know he's coming because we saw his face shining like the sun. And his clothing lit up bright as the light. We heard the Father's voice from heaven confirming that this was the Son of God. So Peter, he understood the transfiguration to be a pledge. It was a guarantee that Jesus would come, that he would reign, that he would judge the earth. Even though he would suffer and die, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne. Of it's not if he comes. It's when he comes, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Peter said, I'm, I'm certain of all of this because of what happened. I was there. Let's finish the section. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, the scribes said this because of Malachi chapter five, uh, 4, verse 5, where God said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the boys are confused because they just saw Elijah, but Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah, but clearly Jesus came before Elijah, so they're confused. Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Elijah will restore all things. So apparently now Jesus is referring to the next verse in Malachi's prophecy about Elijah, where God says, and he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Doesn't that sound pleasant? Yeah. And then Jesus adds this comment. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So Elijah's come? How so? They did to him whatever they wished. What does that mean? And the Son of Man will also suffer at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was Elijah? I thought John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And then in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, nope. Well, that's because John the Baptist wasn't Elijah. But as the angel told John the Baptist's father in Luke 1.17, John would go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John the Baptist would come in the same manner as Elijah. He would execute a similar mission as Elijah, even wearing similar clothes as Elijah. And John would exercise the same authority as Elijah. We see that when he's preaching repentance. But John wasn't actually Elijah. He, wasn't, he couldn't be Elijah risen from the dead because Elijah didn't die. And uh, reincarnation is a pagan thing. He wasn't reincarnated in John the Baptist. What in the world's going on? Well, just as the transfiguration of Jesus, excuse me, aren't you glad you're back there further? <laughs> just as the transfiguration of Jesus wasn't the second coming of Jesus, but prefigured his coming in glory, John the Baptist prefigured the actual coming of Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Look back at verse 11. Jesus answered and said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus says, indeed, Elijah is coming. Uh, that is stated in the present tense. But then Jesus says that Elijah will restore all things. That is in the future tense. Well, I got a question. John the Baptist is dead. He's been murdered by Herod. So how will he, future tense, restore all things? Well, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing Israel for Messiah. But I believe Elijah, as Jesus says, will come as Elijah, okay? Just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and a curse will come upon the earth just as the prophets predicted. And I think it's very soon, okay? It's very exciting to me because I've read the rest of the scripture, okay? Uh, everything is unraveling exactly how God has planned and he is orchestrating all of it. All things predicted in scripture will come to pass. All things came to pass just as they said regarding Jesus' first coming and they're going to come to pass exactly how they say everything will unravel second coming. That's what the transfiguration is all about. It's confirming what has been promised. And so with the apostles, I will testify, I would say actually with the prophets and the apostles, that even as Jesus came as a man, lived a perfect life, died an atoning and substitutional death, rose in power, ascended to the right hand of the Father, he will also return with power. He will sit on the throne of his glory. He will reign over the earth, judge the living and the dead. He will usher in the eternal state in the new heaven and the new earth, just as he said he would. That's what this whole section is all about. The pledge to the apostles is the same pledge to us. All that they were looking forward to from the, the prophet and all that they were looking forward to according to the writing by what Jesus said, it's going to happen. Go ahead and stand up. Well, Father, if it doesn't happen, as you have said, it most certainly will happen. Well, that would mean that we're in charge of our own destiny. And I can't think of anything more fearful and frightening. But Lord, you have, you have told us the end of all things, the very that all things are going to happen within the parameter of your sovereignty. And you've declared that even in the end times, perilous times will come. 
that you will still come judge, fix the mess that we Lord, I thank you for the eyewitness account. I thank you for the testimony of your word, which is more powerful than the eyewitness account. So I pray, Lord, for the people of Calvary Chapel, that we would not waver faith concerning all that. This is all happening according to you will come fully the earth. So Lord, help us as things happen in our culture. Help us not to be fearful and believing, to trust you. It's going, you are not, as you said, slack concerning all will happen.